I'm Rob Hopkins, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of From What If to What Next. This podcast began as one of my lockdown projects, but I just published the 11th episode, which feels like a great moment to pause, to look back and to celebrate what has been created so far on our exploration of those two most powerful words in our language right now, what if. One of my favourite bits of each episode is at the beginning, where I invite my guests to close their eyes and imagine the world in 2030 if the what-if question we're considering had come to pass, had become normal and everyday in that world. They let us inside their heads, inside the visions that underpin their work, allowing us to walk about in the future as it appears to them. It gives us an often very moving sense of what gets them out of bed every morning. They almost put the listener into an altered state, where the gap between how things are and how they could be markedly shrinks, even for a few minutes. And so, to celebrate the recent publication of our 11th episode, it's my delight to offer you this very special podcast, which splices some of the best bits of the future visioning sections from episodes 1 to 9, together with beautiful music composed especially for us by Tamsin Cornish and Ben Adicott. Listening back to these recordings now, they're so rich, so beautiful. They're like getting into a warm bath, a dream state, a taste of a future that might yet still be possible to us, just. If you aren't a subscriber to From What If to What Next, we do this every two weeks. So why not subscribe at www.patreon.com from what if to what next and fill your life with possibility. Our subscribers enable this podcast to exist. Do join us. So, our first taste of 2030 comes from our very first episode, which featured musician Sam Lee and Maya Rose Craig, also known as Bird Girl. Here are their reflections on what the world would be like if birdsong drowned out the traffic. Sit back, close your eyes, enjoy the next hour, and let it transport you to a future that was the result of our doing everything we could possibly have done. very lucky in London to have such a large number of green spaces. However, what I'd imagine is that the way we manage those green spaces is very different and they're not short cropped grass with single lone trees standing, but we have a diversity in habitats of wildflowers and scrub and brambles and blackthorn and a real messy environment that you can get lost in, even postcard sized spaces. And also that homes no longer paved driveways or graveled over that everyone's front garden is a is a haven for insects and left to go wild and all that tameness is suddenly dispensed of as being so last year and the zeitgeist is to have your rewilded front gardens The idea of a place like a city or wherever that puts its appreciation for nature and biodiversity above anything, it is idyllic and it's this really beautiful imagined future. People will be essentially living a sort of their their spare time in service to creating these habitats. 
it's something that we all take great pride in. And uh, once a year, there'll be a Britain in birdsong bloom type competition and neighborhoods will be voted as having the most prolific or diverse birdsong and get badges and roundabouts in cities will suddenly be avian sanctuaries and dedicated to a particular species. I'm very lucky, I live in the countryside and at the moment that is a reality and I think for me the idea of people waking up in the morning, birds being their alarm clock, just being surrounded by this very loud reminder of nature wherever they go is something that's very striking. One thing I absolutely love when cycling home late after a party at two, three o'clock in the morning, particularly in the winter, is when a big fat blackbird is singing on a tree in the middle of the city late at night. I imagine that groups of people, after party revelers will go and stand under those blackbird trees and, and just kind of have that sound bath, that opportunity to really adore and, and certain neighbourhoods would have famous blackbirds that people would travel across town for to go and hang out and listen to that blackbird. People don't really realise it, but it's the perfect way for us to live as well, surrounded by nature. Gorgeous. What if we had a universal basic income? What if we lived in a world in which the economic precariousness so many people experience in 2020 had been eradicated? In our second episode, we explored the question, what if a universal basic income sparked a revival of the imagination? We were joined by Phil Tier and Alexis Fraz to explore this and to walk us through a world in which this had already become a reality. Financial insecurity has been eradicated. People no longer go to work because they have no choice or they won't be able to pay their bills or pay their rent or make, make their mortgage payments or whatever. Work has changed because of that. We have cities and towns with clean air, which we can smell and smell the flowers and smell the trees. We hear the birds. We swim in the clean water in our lakes and our rivers. The famous concept of bullshit jobs, the idea that the job we do serves no real purpose at all in the world, something that 38% of adults back in 2020 in the UK believed has, has gone. People are healthier. You can see it. People spend time gardening or cooking or with their family, doing things that really matter to them. The jobs we have are left with and the jobs we have created are more purposeful. They are jobs that give us a sense of self-esteem rather than just a wage pack at the end of the month. There's more room for gifts, so people are doing things and contributing to their community in ways that matter to them and that matter to their community without having to worry about whether it's something that they can profit from. Micro-entrepreneurialism is rife because with financial security, people have a headspace to think about what they want to do. But this entrepreneurialism is maybe not like the entrepreneurialism we associate with Silicon Valley and places like that. This is small, individual, almost cottage industry entrepreneurialism, where people may have two, three, four projects on the go at any one time. But entrepreneurialism may refer to 
initiatives within the community and caring for others. And there's more cultural richness and cultural diversity because tradition bearers and masters of their craft actually spend time on doing that work without having to worry that it's something that they they can, again, turn a profit from. We're seeing a lot of both biological and cultural diversity and a lot of care so that people are, are spending time together, investing in each other and investing in their community. Walking down that street, it's a, it's an environment where people are less anxious, less stressed, less on edge with each other, and happier. How would it be if we were to completely reimagine our food system? Around the world, people are setting out intentionally to do this. And for our third episode, I was joined by two amazing activists making this happen in Liège, in Belgium, and also in London. Dee Woods and Christian Jornet took us into a future in which we already live in a city with a relocalised food system. What would it be like? What would it look like, feel like, smell like, sound like? In 10 years, I imagine a cooperative food production site in every district of Liège, where the, the local population, people uh, from the neighborhood, can come up and harvest their food themselves. I can see fruit bushes and fruit trees in the park opposite, in the community garden. It's expanded, lots of fruits and vegetables and herbs growing. And the city of Liège has loaned a first piece of land for a period of 20 years for the installation of two uh, new and young vegetable growers. And we are studying with the city the possibility of doing that in every neighborhood, every district of Liège. This makes a lot of sense. It creates uh, social ties and resilience in the neighborhoods. And I imagine that Within 10 years, it might be in a lot of neighborhoods, uh, this, this, uh, this system. And it's just this vibrant explosion of colors and smell and of people and people growing, harvesting food to be cooked in our community kitchen and people gathering around food. I imagine also that most of School canteens uh, in Liège are supplied with uh, organic and local products. It's uh, already the case for several small canteens in the region, but we are working with the city so that uh, gradually uh, the dozens of uh, schools of the city are supplied with such local uh, quality products. And as we walk around the neighborhood, we have a vibrant market, foods that cater to every pocket and to different ethnicities. And you could smell that as well. Thyme and lavender. There's a Caribbean herb that goes by different names called big leaf thyme or Spanish oregano. You could smell that in the air. You can smell ripening fruit. And the goal really is that all of the city's children, whatever their social condition, can have access to quality food, and it's spreading.
So this is what I imagine within 10 years. A vision so delicious, I can almost taste it. What if doctors' surgeries became catalysts for transition? Within the health service, there are already pioneers who are starting to make this happen, and Dr Jane Myatt and Dr Michael Dixon are two such pioneers. So what's the vision of the future that motivates them, and what would it be like to live in a world where the health service has been transformed to be a key driver of the wider changes taking place across society? In episode four, we took a walk with Jane and Michael to our local doctor's surgery in 2030. I'm going to start off going into the surgery with all the gardens around with lots of information on how to grow the plants, how to cook them and what their medical uses are. Outside the surgery will be lots of fruit and vegetables and herbal plants that you can buy, again, with that information. So I will have left my home having been well rested for a change and I would see many familiar and friendly faces along the way as I am woven into my community. I am theirs and they are mine. People would be tending gardens. There wouldn't be as many fences or walls. But where there needs to be boundaries, there would be rich hedgerows. As you go in, you'll pass the cafe on the left, which uh, has got patient groups booked in almost every hour during the day, whether it's a fibromyalgia self-help group or a back pain self-help group or a premenstrual tension or irritable bowel. And in the other corner of the cafe, there'll be a a demonstration, a a good cooking demonstration, all this done by volunteers, I should add. The air is filled with birdsong again, and London looks more like a rich parkland or forest. There is no need for a lot of traffic, as we have learnt to find what we need right where we are. And then as you go into the surgery, you'll pass the link worker, the social prescribing link worker's room, but outside, She'll have a little console where you can yourself um, signpost to all sorts of non-medical interventions that uh, might be helpful. And when I reach my practice, there is the smell of delicious breakfast being prepared by those in our community who are enjoying the magic of the midnight kitchen space we have created, learning skills of how to be together, how to stir slowly and weave together the sum of our many parts into something much richer and more delicious and along the way learning much more than how to cook in the process. You then pass the new person who's only come in the last five years, the community volunteer facilitator whose role is to make sure everyone can volunteer, that there are lots of options open especially for children and the people that need voluntary services get them. And incidentally, you won't be a a patient of the practice anymore. You won't register. You'll be a member with rights and responsibilities and volunteering will be part of that. Ingredients will have been taken from the surrounding patchwork of cultivated green spaces nestled between areas of residual wildness, I think. We'll gather together to eat along a long and welcoming table before we start our day's work. You'll be able to see your own doctor. Uh, you may have to wait 10 days, two weeks to see your own doctor. But if not, you will see a doctor of a segregated team because these surgeries will have 12 or 15 partners, but they'll be divided into teams of three. So you will always see a doctor that you know, even if it's not your own accountable registered doctor. And then finally, the doctors themselves will not only be seeing you for care and surgery as they do today, but each will be funded 
for a half day each week to do uh, local community health with some attached to the school, some attached to the council, some attached to local retail, uh, in my area, Devon to farmers, uh, responsible for improving the health locally and also very much engaged in future planning so that planning no longer becomes a question of the council having a plan and the developer doing it in their own fashion but in fact health the, the GP is responsible and everyone else actually creating a plan which the developer needs to keep to so creating a healthy environment around the surgery. We will have developed many different healing activities as we are now wise and humble healers who can provide one-to-one -one counsel when needed to mend broken or damaged stories, but we would often take our part in small groups where we learn to support each other again. A good day's work. In our fifth episode... We asked what if we treated people at the end of their lives with the same reverence, love and care as we do at the beginning of life? What would it be like to live in a world which treated death and dying and old age in a very different way than we do in 2020? Mike Grenville and Mary Nally took us on a walk through a world in which that had already happened. world of the future would be one of connection. It would be one where elder people would be intimately connected with young people. We wouldn't have nurseries separate from old people's homes. They would be naturally close together. Going forward, I would love to have less nursing homes because they seem to be getting bigger and bigger with more people in them and I think it would be just lovely if we could have smaller places within their own community. This world would be one where people would not be afraid of dying as though somehow it was a failure. This would be a world where people would die with their legal affairs in order. 60% of people die in the United Kingdom without a will. I have many personal experiences of knowing people who knew they were dying of cancer, for example, and still never signed their will. I mean, it's the wish of a lot of people to die within their own homes, in their own bed, where they would have neighbours and friends around them. How can we do that? We can do that if we put proper supports in place. Currently, we have, I think, over 200 euphemisms to describe death and dying. This would be a world where we would not be frightened of endings, where endings would have their proper place in the cycle of life. It would have its proper place in everything that we do. We wouldn't be able to buy a salad pack that we would eat in one meal that would be wrapped in a plastic bag that would take a thousand years to decompose. To 
to remain connected, as Mike said, it's so important. It can be difficult for some people to visit older people, but if you're living in the community, if you're there with the older person, giving people the dignity, dignity at the end of life. Our ability to face endings would affect everything. One of the things that our imagination needs is spaces. Places in our everyday lives where our imagination is intentionally invited, nourished and enhanced. What if such places existed? What if they were everywhere? Places where play and dreaming are encouraged. Tom Doust and Marie Goddard joined me to explore what if communities had spaces where they could come together to imagine. They took us inside a delicious future in which this had already happened. I wake up in the morning and take a glass of fresh water from the fountain. The sky is cloudy, but the sun is breaking through. I heard birds singing. I feel fresh air between my fingers and flowing in through my nose. It's delightful. I walk 10 minutes with bare feet in the woods. Yes, access to nature has been recognized as a human right and there are trees everywhere now. I connect with elements, soil, air, water and the huge diversity of living beings and let my intention for the day come to me. Spaces need people. So without people, spaces are are flat and dead. But with people, they come alive through people's empathy and sharing. So... In imagining these spaces, I think also the, you need that sort of uh, opportunity and the time for people to have, have the time to imagine. I continue my work and get to the neighborhood gardens. Fruit trees, vegetables and flowers, crawling, crawling and climbing everywhere. Everyone grows his own food with his neighbor here. In the middle of the garden, I join the common space a beautiful agora with a big circular wooden table, a bread oven and a fireplace. Natalie and Jack are already there. Rachel is reading in the hammock, while Monique is enjoying her tea on a small table. She loves to be still and alone in the morning. So what I'm seeing here is actually there's some sort of social prescription wrapping around these spaces to imagine. And there's these opportunities to allow people as a kind of well-being agenda to take time out of their day to come and visit those spaces. Because if people don't come to them, they won't come alive. And I guess it's important to say that then our society has shifted slightly. So we're given that opportunity to actually wander and come across places that we think allow us to, to use and apply our imagination. I eat some bread and veggies with Ben, my husband, and Ali and Manu our friends who live under the willow over there in a beautiful tiny house. Around here, everyone chooses his or her own way to live. Yurts, tinies, houses or apartments. We begin our day with a 15-minute games called the Solution Corner. Manu broke the imagination flag. He has a challenge to propose to intelligence of the group. Of course, you can't just 
prescribe imagination. Imagination can't just happen. You actually have to uh, find the time to, to do that. You have to find the, the time to, to let your mind wander and you have to be inspired by things. So overall, I think we're looking at a society wrapping around these spaces that is working less and being more active in its communities and volunteering more. Rather than starting your day perhaps in a sweaty indoor gym working out, I'm actually envisaging a, an imagination gym where you can exercise this all-important imagination muscle, which I think is a muscle. I think we probably lose touch with our imagination and we forget how to, to use it and therefore we need to work at it and strengthen that muscle. I continue my way on the path that goes to the city. Saint-Symphorien, my village, is not far from Mons, about six kilometers. Since oil has become too rare and too expensive to allow all people to have a car, the road has been changed in four paths, pedestrians, cycles, animals and public transport. It's not raining yet. I decide to walk. I have time. This gym might not be too radically different from society's infrastructure today, but it, it involves things that we're, we're perhaps losing today. Those kind of quiet spaces that we might find time to pick up a book or an article to read. So thinking about ways in which we can use our civic spaces like libraries and bring them back to life and breathe life into them. But also it's spaces where we can bring ideas to life. So spaces where we can fabricate our ideas, perhaps where you can come together and play with materials. Or if you have an idea, you can actually rapidly prototype that concept and share it with people. I, I'm always a fan of Speaker's Corner in London, where you can just pop up and share some thoughts or be inspired by talks and screenings. On the road, I see a succession of edible gardens, eco-renovated buildings, play spaces, places and forests. They are often food forests, but not always. Some of them are memory woods or wild ones. There's a lot of water everywhere. The city really changed since the Ministry of Imagination was born. The city has become a huge laboratory in which everyone can participate. Another area I think uh, will change quite quite quickly and, and I'm, I'm imagining how it will change and I'm excited by this because I'm involved in it, is the education systems around us. So at the moment we have a very regimented approach that children go to school at nine o'clock and everyone rushes there and everyone picks them up at three o'clock. That model is, as we know, outdated and I think there's a fantastic opportunity in the next 10 years to reimagine how we might have a more kind of blended approach to people's uh, learning and education. So the school buildings might change. Sure, you might still have classrooms for certain things, but actually learning might happen in a more holistic way, supported perhaps at home or by technology and connectivity, but also the fabric of our towns, our cities, the countryside. They have so much to offer to, for us to learn. So actually thinking about how everyday spaces are really important learning spaces. They're rich in culture and heritage. So uh, as well as uh, teachers teaching, I think people, we all become teachers and civic spaces become places where we can, we can learn and, and uh, expand our minds. I get to my workplace of the day, the nest station. Indeed, in each city, the station has been greened and turned into a common place that reflects the city, its ground, its history, its people, their stories and their dreams. 
a place to welcome newcomers and visitors, a space of possibilities where people gather to imagine and craft the way they want to live together, a place like an anchor, a totem, and a rainbow connected to the living. And then finally, are our parks and green spaces in, in towns and cities. And parks, obviously, are hugely important. People use them all the time. But rarely do we get the chance to help manipulate and shape those spaces where we can think about the types of needs of people who use those parks. So maybe in those parks and green spaces, we're seeing more kind of areas for quiet spaces or places expanded for the exercising. So we don't need gyms or places to play, places to grow food and, and really link up that, that opportunity for people who don't have space to grow food. And so here I'm, I'm envisaging that laws are relaxed. So the, the public realm really becomes public because over the last few decades, certainly in, in this country, we've seen that public realm has been closed by private companies. And actually, the local authority owns a lot of land. And so how can we find ways in which communities can really start to take ownership of that land and help shape it and with more time become uh, contributors to the, the changing of that? It's the end of the meeting. We ate together. We have been talking a lot, of course, and playing, laughing and even dancing. It's now 4 p.m., time to go home. Friday night is a special moment for us. It's a pizza party. We gather around the bread oven in the garden. Children organize games for the future. For everyone, we play music and sing. At the end of the evening, just before going to bed, we tell our stories. Trying to get rituals back in our lives, we reconnect with the ancient legends and myths of our region. Children are almost asleep. It's time to retire in our dreams tomorrow. It's another day of adventure. Every now and then, on From What If to What Next, we do an episode where we have just one guest to allow us to dive deep into their imagination. These subscriber-only bonus episodes are one of the advantages of becoming a patron of this podcast. We were hugely honoured to have Rutger Bregman, author of Humankind, on one of these, and to have him walk us through the 2030 of his imagining. All the institutions would be grounded in just a different view of who we are as a species. The central idea would be that most people are pretty decent. So if you would visit a school 10 years from now, I think what you would do is to uh, model it uh, with the uh, sort of hunter-gatherer type of education. So you'd mix all the ages of the kids, all the levels. You give them the freedom basically to explore their own learning pathways. They obviously would be, you know, helped by their teachers or by their coaches but they would really learn to rely on their intrinsic motivation because they have to be prepared for a very different kind of society where people are not working their ass off in jobs they don't really like to uh, buy stuff they don't need but they can actually follow their dreams so the job market would be very different as well i'm not even sure whether we would still call it a market maybe it'd be a little bit different because we'd obviously have introduced a universal basic income by then which will mean that the wages will much better reflect the social value of the jobs that people will do. 
So if you're a nurse or a teacher or a garbage collector, you'll probably earn more money than a banker because you have more bargaining power. People have realized, especially after 2020, you know, which was the big shifting point when we all realized that we were so dependent on these essential workers that if they would go on strike, that we're in, a, in big trouble. While if the bankers or the marketeers go on strike, well, no one really cares. <laughs> We have seen this huge shift in not only a redistribution of income, but also a redistribution of respect. But we've even gone further than that. We've also started to assume the best, not only in our friends, in our co-workers, but also in those farther away from us, uh, in criminals and immigrants. Norway is one of the countries that has really led the way here. They already experimented 10 years ago with very different kind of prisons where prisoners get the freedom to socialize with the guards, make their own music, their own music label, which is called Criminal Records. And uh, the country already proved back then that it had the lowest recidivism rate in the world. So it's a much smaller chance that people would commit another crime. It, it sort of turned criminals into citizens and that became the model for countries around the globe. So every institution you look at, whether it's a school, the workplace, the way we do democracy, even how our prisons are organized, everything will have changed. Beautiful. We were joined by Ariana Conrad and Masoom Momaya to explore the question, what if imagination were a universal right? In 2030, imagination is in many ways a function of privilege, and it's so important that we create the conditions for everyone to live lives rich in imagination. What would it be like to live in a world where the factors that deplete and undermine our imagination, such as colonisation, systemic racism and social exclusion, were no longer an issue? What would it be like to live in a world where imagination was now a universal right? I loved this episode. I think if an imagination is a right, the two words that come to mind first are peace and safety. People can walk freely in their bodies and move freely in their bodies regardless of their shape, their size, their abilities, their gender expressions, the color of their skin, their age. And there's an embrace of that, not just a tolerance of that. It smells like growing things. We've ripped up a lot of the concrete that used to cover the ground since there are hardly any private cars left. And so in all of that space, people are now growing food. The air and water are clean. You can hear laughter, not just the laughter of children, but the laughter of adults. Children are playing outside. Making projects outside is considered part of education now that we've realized how important the imagination is. All of the foundations that allow people to really partake in imagination as a human right are there. Many of the things that Ariana mentioned, including an environment in balance, local economies and ecosystems are nurtured, there's clean water and air, laughter, general health and well-being, connection among people, not so much loneliness, and an economy that really takes care of everyone. 
and that leaves nobody behind. Adults are also much more satisfied at their work because the workplace has changed in similar ways. Adults are only working uh, at their main gig half the week, which leaves the other half for elder care and child care and participation in local governance and in making art and making food. I think this world also has more art, including murals, sculptures, music, dancing, and poetry, and it's woven into everyday life, not just as a hobby or as an entertainment. The fashion has changed. It's fallen out of fashion to be wearing uh, luxury items or displaying the newest shiny tech. Instead, the fashion is to wear clothes with that are obviously patched and where people have inventively repaired things. It's also totally fallen out of fashion to be staring at one's screen while among the, in the presence of others while in public uh, or, or fondling one's screen. And instead, devices are, are politely tucked away in pockets or even left at home. Like Ariana, I also think that people spend much less time amongst screens. Work life isn't necessarily sitting behind a computer for many people. The primary means of communication is not just, you know, a mobile phone. It's also totally fallen out of fashion to inject a paralyzing toxin into your face. People's faces are beautifully you know, lined, full of, full of the, the marks of laughter and, and a life well-lived. So after the murder of George Floyd, one thing led to another, and ultimately police and prisons and the armed forces were massively defunded. Uh, they now constitute just 10% of their former selves, and that money has gone into robust preventative health care and well-being programs that also contribute to a rich imagination. Everyone had to get training in nonviolent communication and facilitation and CPR so that they're able to diffuse crises uh, amongst themselves. People are reconnected to people around them, to the environment, and at the same time drawing upon many other things, including connections to spiritual life, as well as connections to different forms of art as ways of getting information, but also gleaning inspiration in their day-to-day lives. Our economic model plays a huge role in 2020 in suppressing the imagination, forging forward with its vision of growth at all costs, underpinned by short-term thinking and a profound lack of creativity and vision. When Margaret Thatcher said of her economic approach, there is no alternative, those words seared themselves deep into our imagination. Instead of focusing on growth, what would it be like instead to live in a world that prioritised the well-being of every citizen? What would it be like to live in a world with such a profoundly different underpinning? To walk through a day in the life in such a world? I was joined by Yannick Baudouin 
of the David Suzuki Foundation and Dr. Catherine Trebek of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance for a walkthrough of a world of well-being. Well, thanks, man. I just woke up. I've been retired now, of course, since there's uh, nothing left to do in 2030 after all this transition. Uh, the uh, the first thing that hit me was uh, I was just listening to the radio, and it's been two years since here in Toronto we've actually had a traffic report. There's no more rush hour traffic, so why would you have a, a traffic report? Um, you know, we've actually one of the big highways that used to split the city in two is called the Gardner, and now, of course, we we turn the Gardner into a garden. Uh, and the whole all across the city and then instead of having traffic jam we now have a music jam festival uh, celebrating two years without a traffic jam a couple of things i think you'd notice walking around a well-being economy in 2030 is the energy that we use would be all renewable often micro renewable energy provision often run by community-owned organisations and they've been at the forefront of the sort of businesses that we will see flourishing in, in 2030. No longer will it be these massive top-down conglomerates that are extracting wealth to go up to those who are lucky enough to own shares and lucky enough to have their bonuses dependent on the on the shares. People will say, yeah, what were those shares? What was the, you know, the stock exchange? Now we'll have social stock exchange and community uh, shares and other the mechanisms. Also, we've just marked a third anniversary of the uh, last homeless person in Canada who was supported into decent and dignified housing. The Wellbeing Economy Government's partnership will be where most political cooperation happens, and this is a, a club of governments united not by how big their GDP is, but from a shared will and ambition to put collective well-being at the heart of policymaking. And of course our infrastructure no longer will be designed for petrol, but it will be designed for walking and community spaces. It won't be about shopping centres, it'll be about choirs. I think what's also really been interesting is to notice the shift in the real estate kind of market, the mix of who occupies which kind of office in, in the city. Of course, Toronto being one of the financial hubs of the world, one of the, the big one in, in Canada anyways. Uh, and that's all kind of disappeared now because of course the, the conventional financial services don't really have as big a role or really any big role going on. So suddenly we've decided over the last little while to kind of value the 99% and really unleash the full creativity of, of all of humanity. And so all these workspaces that used to be occupied by big banks are now of course being redirected and used for creative spaces of all sorts, you know, whether it's technical or artistry or et cetera. So, I, you know, I'm lucky I was, you know, back in 2020, way back when I was part of the 1% who was allowed to be, you know, expected to be creative every day. Now, of course, the 99% get to be creative and, and all that. So that's really beautiful to see. Many more businesses that are purposed explicitly to deliver social and environmental returns. So what we're seeing now today in 2020, the sort of beginnings of these sorts of business models that have been described as the emerging fourth sector will dominate the economic ecosystem in, in 2030. Things like cooperatives, social enterprises, community enterprises, kicks, all those sorts of business models, right through from the, the ones that are quite close to what we used to know in back in 2030, right through to the much more radical, like the economy for the common good models, will, will be how people just by default, when they think about setting up a business, will gravitate to. 
an incredible milestone too, about five years now since a police officer in Canada has ever shot a person of color or uh, anybody else for that matter, uh, because we've redefined the entire concept of policing around concepts of well-being and dignity and, uh, and connection and all that. And that COVID crisis that we had in 2020, where people realised that they didn't want to be so busy anymore, will have really become the, the normal way of doing things. People will work shorter working weeks, they'll have more public holidays, they won't be so much at the beck and call of their employer. They'll be working because they have a sense of purpose and meaning, not because they're having to work three jobs on minimum wage just to put food on the table, but everyone will have enough to meet their basic needs and to undertake community activities, to care for their families, to get involved in the politics that Yannick was describing. So we won't feel so frantically busy, we'll feel calmer, we won't feel so precarious in terms of our, our financial security. You know, on the world stage, what's been interesting to sort of see is it took a while but uh, through a lot of different pressures, we're noticing, uh, number one, all the UN member states, the UN, of course, now being uh, led by a, an incredible uh, woman of color, has actually uh, agreed to a 10-year moratorium on male and white leaders. Uh, so that's been absolutely fantastic to see because that allows now a new space to happen and new perspectives to come in as we're working to redefine 2,000 years of a very particular kind of structure and, and patriarchy. We may see some hospital wings could be closed because people aren't being stressed and turning to drugs and alcohol to sort of self-medicate and try and get through their precarious, anxious lives. We might see fewer police walking around because people feel safe and protected just walking around their local communities. People will know each other more and look out for each other. So there'll be a huge shift across all levels of people's lives in their time, even how they get their food. I mean, that people might have time to grow their food in their backyards and to share it with neighbours and take time to chat to neighbours. They won't have to buy so much package-laden, pre-made goods that they just bang in the microwave after a long day at work where they're feeling pretty depressed and mind-dead at the, at the end of a job that doesn't meet their, their need for sort of relationships and, and sense of purpose global to local decision making really got kind of shifted. You know, we have, we've all been used to for so long back in the 2010s and before that, where decisions were made in these closed rooms, all safe and all that. Well, now all that decision making has gone experiential. So you can't just, you know, make a decision from a closed door far, far away. So if giving an example of that, in Toronto, you have city council. Now, if they're, they were debating back then when there were still homeless people, anything to do with homelessness, they actually had to go and spend the entire debate, uh, the whole council would meet for days in a homeless shelter and have a real experience of what that is as they were making the decisions. Maybe on a global scale, you might see that uh, Security Council from now on, uh, although we're working very hard to you know, uh, dismantle that as well, uh, the Security Council is actually having to, uh, you know, if they want to do military action, they then have to meet in the place where they've started that military action until the military action's over. And of course, the member states who didn't support that, they get to join in by a Zoom call from uh, the safety of their own home country. In a way, we don't need to imagine that because we're already seeing the beginnings of this well-being economy bubbling up around the world. And that's where I think a lot of folks who are working in this movement derive hope that will keep them going for the decade of massive change that we need. We need change across all levels of the system and how we go about decision-making, how we be go about doing business, how we go about building out our cities and our towns and our communities. 
but we're just starting to see the beginnings of that emerge now, which makes 2030, that vision, seem potentially possible if we work hard enough. Another of our subscriber-only bonus episodes featured David Holmgren, co-founder of the permaculture movement and author recently of the brilliant Retro Suburbia. When I spoke to him, I asked him to bring his vision of Retro Suburbia alive for us. What would it be like to go for a walk in that world of retrofitted neighbourhoods in a world beyond fossil fuels? physical structure of the landscape of houses and streets and public spaces and small commercial shops might still be roughly the same. Not this sort of huge physical transformation, but the strong thing is really the place is alive with activity. There's people everywhere doing things. So that change from the sort of dormitory suburb space that people are living in at night but not there during the day, that's really the, the greatest sense that there's people everywhere, active outside, an enormous amount of activity happening both in the private spaces of gardens but also in the public spaces. Walking down streets, the, the progressive reoccupation of the pavement, of the areas allocated to cars, and there's still cars using those spaces, but they're pedestrian, bicycle spaces, and even part of the pavements being colonized by things parked there, maybe vehicles that are actually partly someone's tiny house, things using the space. That activity, that sense of the separation between this is where people live their residential lives and this is where work happens, commercial spaces and jobs, all of that has become completely blurred. You know, that there's double garages where the roller doors are up and people have got their wares and their workshop tools out on the forecourt doing work manufacturing, small manufacturing operations. The diversity of animals that really suburbia has become re-ruralized without really substantially knocking down buildings but animals are you know, occupying the space and whether that's uh, rabbits in hutches mowing lawns or people walking goats down to the local creek where they're tethering them to eat the blackberries. So a huge amount of garden farming happening in the private spaces, but also community gardens and urban agriculture, commercial enterprises. 
more people are living more of the time outdoors and especially children and the sense that oh are those children at school or are they at home that that's completely blurred that a lot of education is happening where children are doing things with adults and it's not clear whether they're helping the adults in a work sense or those adults are actually teaching the children because a lot of those things have become blended together. What might have been a suburban petrol station, you know, the big underground tanks have been retrofitted to catch uh, water after they've been decontaminated. So that's further water storage for dealing with drier climates. The beginnings of human waste composting are just behavioural adaption. The number of people who are using pea buckets and putting that into gardens and wheelie bin compost toilets that might be actually being delivered to a composting facility that might be at one of those um, suburban petrol stations that's no longer needed. The childhood vehicle that I remember, the billy cart, might come back not in the way of a kid's toy, but um, the what it originally was, which was a cart for moving things around, pulled by a, a big muted billy. And of course, <laughs> uh, goats are uh, amazingly, amazing character animals that a lot of people have a lot of affinity to and a lot more suburb friendly dairy animal than of course cows which are big and have sloppy poos and so I imagine hearing a lot of animal noises. How is your imagination muscle feeling at this point of listening to all of these? Hopefully it's been really stretched and given a great workout. Some of the elements of a low-carbon, fair, just and diverse 2030 that were the result of our having done everything we could possibly do are already, in 2030, underway. To continue with the theme of economics, one of these is donut economics, a brilliant strategy for towns, cities, organisations and businesses to reimagine themselves as businesses that work within the limits these times demand of us, but seeing those as a huge opportunity for imagination and brilliance. The City of Amsterdam is pioneering this approach, using donut economics to rethink their future. We were joined by Kate Rayworth and Marika van Dornick, Deputy Mayor of Amsterdam, to explore their imagining of what Amsterdam will be like in 2030 when it is 10 years into the process of becoming a donut economy, a process that's already underway. If I could sign up right here and right now for the future you're about to hear Kate and Marika outline, where do I sign?
if you imagine walking through the canals of Amsterdam, you would uh, you would see, hardly see any cars because the big public space would be so much greener than it is right now. All the space that our cars are taking up right now have been replaced mostly by pedestrians, but also with cyclists and bikes. But mostly what you see that it's more relaxed. Because we removed the cars and we brought back two feet and two wheels and scooters and cargo bikes, there's this sense that instead of bustling our way down a high street, we would browse our way down. There's just so much to stop and see, a little bit of street food here. Oh, what's this little enterprise out of the back of a cargo bike? A more kind of carnival or festival feeling just every day in the streets where we move. The city's got a goal of being 100% circular city by 2050. And that means already in, in 10 years time, gonna be well on the way there. You're gonna actually be able to go around the city and find storage places for materials from buildings. They don't just get demolished and taken away. There's going to be places in the city that, and that there's policy beginning now. Where is this going to be located? So that to build a building, you go and see what's there. It's more relaxed because there's less hassle because the green also invites people to see the city in another way. So you have a more relaxed city, which is so much greener. And you can see it on, on the pavement, which is not only concrete anymore, but the pavement will also be pots of small flowers or small plants. So not only the city is green because of the parks and the trees, but also the smaller parts of greens that makes it more enjoyable to be there, but also helps us to combat the heat in the city, especially in, in the summer times. And we're gonna be using re in our language. We're gonna be rebuilding, refurbishing, remaking, reusing, recreating, reinventing. The re is gonna be a big part of our language. Actually, you won't see an empty roof anymore in Amsterdam. All roofs are, are covered either in green or with solar panels. I love the idea, as Marika's saying, you know, every rooftop, it's harvesting energy. So it's either harvesting energy through being a green rooftop and harvesting it in natural energy catching or through solar energy. And I love the idea that every building will have on it a little dashboard that's telling us the metrics of that building in real time. And what it's telling us is not, oh, this was built to such and such construction standard and it was built to be energy efficient. It's telling us in real time that building sequestering and is it as generous as the wildland next door so let's go to the nearby natural wildland and say how much carbon dioxide does this land sequester this forest how much water does it store after a storm how much biodiversity does it house how much does it cool the air from the treetops to the forest floor and let's aim to make our city match that vision The other thing that you imagine if you see the shops, you see much less stuff in the shops and you see much more places where you can have your stuff repaired. If you see girlfriends meet each other, they won't say, oh, you got this new dress, but they will say, oh, you got the same dress that you wore last <laughs> week, but now you've made a little change about it. And that's so fancy and that's so fashionable. And actually people are praised for using their materials over and over again by making little adjustments. So it's still fashionable, but it's the same. I also want to take us from the feeling of being in the city to the implications of the city for the rest of the world because that's a part of donut thinking. So Amsterdam is actually a city that should be really proud of the fact that there are many change makers there who are very aware that the global supply chains on which all of our lives depend, whether it's for food or electronics or chocolate or clothing, down the end of those supply chains are many people who are 
leading very exploited lives, paid very, very low wages. And Amsterdam's a place where people have said, you know what, it doesn't have to be this way. In fact, we're going to prove it can be different. It's the home of Tony's Chocoloni, chocolate that's determined to be made free of slave labor, modern slavery, child slavery. It's the home of Fairphone that was set up as a campaign to show that mobile phones can actually be made in a far more equitable, just and, and sustainable way. Uh, Moye Coffee showing that you can actually roast coffee in the home country. So these businesses, which at the moment are still a bit niche in the world and, and celebrated in Amsterdam, they're just going to become the way things are done because legislation is going to start changing and saying, you know what, we should recognize these pioneers are creating the new normal. And that's, I think, the major change that we have gone through in the past 10 years is that we don't care about stuff to buy and throw away anymore, but we care about the things that we have. And one of the reasons why we could do this is that we made this new law that actually the producers of materials have the obligation to make things last and make things repairable instead of make things to be easily thrown away. The city will be procuring through its own supply chain, for its own office supplies, its own staff uniforms, following the pattern that these companies have established. And then I want to say that we'd also think about food, food in the city, where it's coming from. It's going to be much more local. You'll even be able to tell a story about where, you know, did it come from the rooftop of two buildings away or did it come from just around the city or did it come from worldwide? It will probably come from all of those places, but with a lot more awareness and intent and care about how the food is then regenerated, recycled, because that organic treasure that comes out of our food and turns into food waste, we call it waste, but there's no such thing as waste. Waste is food itself for the next system. The things that people do are valued in a completely different way. So it's not like you have your job and you have a lot of spare things that you do next to that. But those things blur into each other because there's a much stronger social foundation for people in their budget system. So work is not the only thing they do anymore. It's not the only thing that is valued anymore. And the caretaking of their children or their parents or their friends is not like the thing that you do next to your job, but you can combine it with your job. And it's equally valued both in money as in validation of other people. And we're much more aware that we're part of cycles. 20th century cities were built in a very linear way. Stuff comes in, we consume it, and then the waste goes out. Don't really ask where it came from, really don't want to know where it goes. To be a circular city, which again Amsterdam has in its DNA now, let's recognize we're part of food cycles, nutrient cycles, carbon cycles, water cycles, and much more of the former waste is now staying in the city. Electronics materials are going to be urban mining. What's here? What can we turn it into? Some of it will become mobile phones again. Some of it will become funky art and sculpture, and we will celebrate in a more intense way reusing materials. So I think there's going to be a real cultural renaissance as well. And we, we already know it. You know, many people like starting coffee shops in an old industrial space. And they say, no, no, keep the industrial feel, keep those steel girders. Keep that old brick wall, that's what gives it character. And we're going to tap deeper into that cultural aesthetic and celebrate and laugh the fact that you're going to have really old building materials next to brand new ones. And these buildings, if you look up at the rafters, you'll see that they're not glued shut and therefore have to be demolished to take them down. They're click open, so the buildings will be bolted, clicked, clamped, and you'll see the workings of how these materials are held together. So this much more fluid sense of our 
present occupation of earth and the materials, but these are going to be repurposed and it's a continual story. The final subscriber-only episode that we need to hear from featured Tom Karnak, one of the founders of Global Optimism. In our conversation, he shared with us the vision he holds of the future, a future that could be unleashed if we were able to cultivate a culture of optimism in the face of these challenges. The thing which I have brought here is the idea that we can be stubbornly and gritty but realistically determined in our optimism in facing the challenges in front of us, right? So the thing about the future which, which we're envisioning here is that it could look, it, it will look different in so many ways because of innovations and creativity and investments and entrepreneurialism that have transformed the world in myriad ways to create the regenerative low-carbon future that we know is within our grasp. But the difference that I'm describing is about a quality of human engagement in that task. So we all know what it's like to bring an idea or something you're excited about to somebody who responds with enthusiasm and positivity versus somebody who just points out all the problems. And the type of change I'm talking about here is about the software of the system rather than the hardware. It's about the fact that you can come up with ideas about things you can do, entrepreneurial approaches that you can take, ways in which you can tackle challenges at the community level, at the national level, globally, changes that you can make and that you're passionate about and that you want to take action on and collaborate with others. And that those could be met with a deep and consistent, yes, let's do it. We don't have all the answers. We don't know how we're going to solve all the problems. But let's try. Let's have a go. Let's be the people who actually take a risk. And yes, sometimes we fail. But in the end, that's how we make progress. So that's the world which I can feel emerging and which I think is so exciting, is in the face of great challenge and in the face of great peril, it is incumbent upon us to not be afraid, to not be cowering away saying this is impossible and here are all the problems, but to face it, yes, with reality, and we can't deny the darkness of that moment, and if we did, we'd be fools, but actually to face it with a sense of optimism and possibility, because that's how we have a go. So that's the kind of software change, that's how it feels to inhabit that world, and that's, that's very intoxicating. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey to 2030. I hope you're feeling nourished and refreshed by it. We've spent this last hour immersing ourselves in the beautiful imaginations of our guests. Could this become our future? Could this be the world that we and our children get to wander through, to live and breathe and love in 2030? Well, that's rather down to us. And over the past hour, we've made a great start. As the poet Rilke once wrote, the future must enter into you a long time before it happens.
I'm Rob Hopkins and you've been listening to From What If to What Next. Do subscribe and get fresh episodes of this journey every week, plus more besides, for just £3 a month. Join us on this brave expedition into the future at www.patreon.com from what if to what next. Power to the imagination. Thank you.